Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Although the leader was devastated, he managed somehow to suppress his grief, even preaching eloquently at his son's funeral. His display of hope in the midst of tragedy earned him the admiration of many. But a few weeks after the funeral, the man invited Guinness and a few friends to his home. According to Guinness, the man spoke and even screamed, as Guinness puts it, not with the hope of a preacher, but with the hurt of a father pained and furious at God, dark and hopeless. In his agony, he he blamed God for his son's death. Rather than rebuke him, one of Guinness' friends gently reminded the enraged father of the story of Jesus at Lazarus' tomb. On three occasions in that story, Jesus expressed anger and even furious indignation at the presence of death. When Jesus came to earth, he became a human being just like us, feeling the abnormality of our suffering. In Jesus' humanity, we can see God's perspective upon our pain. And how the beautiful world that God has created is now broken and in ruins. Jesus will heal this broken world and our broken lives, but first he came to earth in order to identify with our anguish. Guinness concludes that when we understand Jesus' humanity, it frees us to face the world's brokenness just as Jesus did. Like Jesus, we must never accuse God of wrongdoing, but also, like Jesus, we are, free, we are free to feel what it is to be human. And so it is okay to feel sorrow at what is heartbreaking, shock at what is shattering, and outrage at what is flagrantly out of joint. To pretend otherwise is to be too pious and be harder on ourselves than Jesus was upon himself. As you know, that has struck home this week as we are mourning the sudden loss of someone in our church. And it is during such times of tragedy that the hope of the gospel shines like a multifaceted diamond lying on a black velvet background. We will be reminded this morning that death doesn't win. And sorrow and pain will one day have to flee, never to be seen again. Why? Look at verse 25 with me. And by the way, it's no coincidence that during this time of sorrow, this is the verse that we find ourselves looking at. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? God offers a hope so powerful that it can transform a person's life and rewrite a person's future. But it's not the kind of hope that we usually think of when we use that word. In fact, we use the term all the time to mean different things. But really, much of what we call hope can be classified into three different categories. And the three are wishful thinking, 
blind optimism, and finally, hope centered in a fact, or in our case, in a person. Wishful thinking is when we try to change reality with our thoughts, attempting to hope things out of or into existence. It's when we blow out the candles on our birthday cake and say to ourselves, I hope I stay healthy for another year. It's when the people pick up the Wall Street Journal and say, I hope my stocks have gone up again. Wishful thinking is almost superstitious feeling that some way, somehow, our sincere desires will help things go the direction that we want them to go, even though we really have no power at all to make that happen. If you have lived very long at all, you have experienced at least one moment of truth. It is that terrible instant when the truth about some particular matter can no longer be denied or minimized or rationalized or disguised. There it is in all of its stark, unforgiving glory demanding a choice. Now you can bury the truth and live in a manic, strained denial for the rest of your days. Or you can submit to the truth and then rest in its freedom. If you have faced such a moment, you know as hard as you try to find it, there is no compromising middle way that will allow you to avoid the distressing consequences of either choice. Now the next option is denial or blind optimism. One man said, Denial is a slippery slope leading to a quagmire of pretending and deception, while acceptance requires life-altering choices that will cause intense pain for everyone involved. But at least with the truth, the pain is the healing kind. But that doesn't make the choice any easier. The public ministry of Jesus was a three-year moment of truth for the religious leaders of first-century Israel. The Word of God, who had been promised for centuries, now stood before them in flesh and blood, truth incarnate. Their response? They denied the truth. They disputed with the truth. They marginalized the truth. And in the end, they even tried to silence the truth. But Jesus will not be set aside or put off. He leaves no compromising middle way. Jesus affirmed that and promised that believers would one day be raised from the dead. Then he immediately revealed that the added truth that some believers would never die. And in the original language, that is a double negative. It would rightly be translated, never, no, never die. Are you telling me that some people born on this earth will never face death? How is that possible? The answer is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. When Jesus Christ returns in the air to take his people home, those who are alive at his coming shall never die. They shall be changed and caught up to meet him in the air. But also in the ultimate sense, our spirits will also never die. Why? Because Jesus can rightly say, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, we think the resurrection is just an event 
But Jesus says it is more than that. He says, I am the embodiment of what the resurrection is. And wherever I go, I change things. And we needed things to be changed because of Adam and Eve eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And because of that, Jesus also had to eat from a tree represented by the cross to defeat evil. What I mean is, the first Adam was told by God, Obey me at the tree and you will live. But Adam didn't and brought death to everyone. The last Adam was told by God, Obey me at the tree and you will die. And Jesus did and brought life to everyone. So the resurrection is more than just a doctrine. And if you think about it, when you are sick, you want a doctor and not a medical book or a formula. When you are being sued, you want a lawyer and not a law book. Likewise, when you face your last enemy, death, you want a savior and not just a doctrine written in a book. In Jesus Christ, every doctrine is made personal. When you belong to him, you have all that you will ever need in life, death, time, and eternity. Now notice the progression in his conversation with Martha. She first said, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. Past tense. She then says, I know you will resurrect my brother on the last day. Future tense. But Jesus says, I'm actually more than all of that. Jesus will go from the great I was to the I will be until he's finally the I am. First of all, when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, what does he mean? Well, there's a lot that he means, but I'd like to just look at this part. First, let's stress the first part of that statement. I am the resurrection. Here, Jesus is trying to show you he has been raised for you. I want you to learn that this morning. He has been raised for you. Jesus is not saying, I will be resurrected, though he will be. And he's not saying, I will show you how you can live to be resurrected. He's not saying that either. He's saying, I am the resurrection. I am your resurrection. I'm the way anybody gets resurrected. My resurrection is yours. I have been raised for you. Let me say something I've tried to say before. The essence of Christianity is in its personal pronouns. If you are here this morning saying the Son of God was born, He died, He was raised, He ascended, and He's coming again, that does not make you a Christian. But if you say the Son of God was born for me, He died for me, He was raised for me, He has ascended at the right hand of the Father for me, and He's going to come again for me, that is the essence of Christianity. Paul says in Romans 4.25, he says, Jesus Christ was raised for our justification. You're not a Christian, and you don't understand Christianity if you just understand Jesus was raised. You have to understand he was raised for you. Well, somebody says, how can that be? I know he died for us. He died to pay for our sins. But how could he be raised for our salvation? 
What did that do for us? Well, here's what it did. Let's say you go to Mercer Mall and you buy an item in a store. You always want to make sure that you keep that receipt. Make sure they staple it onto your bag because there are all these strange people who are walking around watching for shoplifters. You better have that receipt with you because if you have a receipt, that's your way of guaranteeing you will never have to pay for that item again, ever. So if you're walking out toward the door, one of these plain clothes people come out and say, wait a minute, is that really your merchandise? What do you do? You just whip out your receipt with confidence. You defy them. You pull it out and say, look at this. I never have to pay for this again. What does that person say? All right, you're free. You're free to go. Friends, listen. There are a lot of people in here. I know because I've talked to a lot of you. There are a lot of people here who don't believe you can ever be free from the sins of your past. Never be free from your failures. Never be free from your inadequacies. You've been taught or you're teaching yourself or both that these things are not things you can ever put behind you. These things are things you're never going to be able to really live down. You'll never be able to forget them. You'll always have to live with them. God says, no. On the cross, Jesus Christ paid that, and I have given you your receipt. What is the receipt? How do you know that Christ Jesus has paid for everything? How do you know Jesus Christ has paid so you never have to pay for any of those things that lie in your past? How do you know? God has given you a receipt. What is that receipt? When Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, God stamped paid in full across the pages of history in letters anybody who has eyes can see. In fact, when Jesus said from the cross, it is finished, that is the word to telestai, and it literally means paid in full. God said the payment is sufficient. You never have to pay for these things again, ever. Do you understand that? But more importantly, do you have your receipt? Do you look at the resurrection and say, that's God's way of saying to me, I'll never have to pay for these things ever again. Do you live in that? Without it, the wrong approach is to say, right, let's just not be afraid of death. Let's face it and say that it's our friend. Some people will say in glowing terms that death is a natural thing. Death is not an awful thing. Death is even a beautiful thing. Death is a peaceful thing. Death is just the final stage of life. Have you ever heard that? And when you hear it, you know in your heart it's a horrible and offensive lie. That's just a cosmetic statement that works about as well as putting lipstick and rouge on a skeleton. All it does is make it look even more hideous. The Bible gives us an understanding of death that there is only one way to believe and to live in freedom in this world. The Bible says, first of all, that death is an enemy. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul calls it the last enemy. It's an enemy. It is not your friend. We know it's not a friend. When you get around the presence of death, you sense 
that that's not your friend. Oh, yeah, for a little while, under some circumstances, when somebody dies, they can look tremendously and angelically peaceful. But just leave them alone for three or four days, and you will see that death is a twisting, perverting, and destructive thing. It is completely abnormal. It is not the way it was supposed to be. It's not a friend. It's an enemy. We hate it. We know we're not meant for this. And even in the presence of Lazarus, when Jesus is ready to raise Lazarus from the dead, what will he do? He weeps. On the other hand, Christianity alone, of all the world religions, sees death as a defeated enemy. Paul says, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? How can anybody in their right mind have the audacity to taunt death? When Paul says there in Corinthians, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? He's teasing it. He's taunting it. He's sticking his tongue out at it. How does anyone have the right and the boldness and the power to do such a thing? The answer is, any Christian man or woman has the power to do that. Because the Bible says that Jesus Christ has broken the bands of death. Peter says in the first sermon in history that Christ broke the bands of death as it was not possible for them to hold him. And as a result, death cannot really harm us. If Jesus dies, you don't have to pay for anything in your past, and he is now living as your living Savior, then what can death do to you? There's a George Herbert poem I've quoted in the past. This is dialogue between death and a Christian. Death says, Let losers talk, yet thou shalt die. These arms shall crush thee. What does the Christian reply in that poem to death? He says, Spare not, do thy worst. I shall be one day better than before, and thou shalt be no more. What is the Christian saying? He is saying, Come on, death. As you reach your hands out to strangle me, Instead of breaking me, you're only going to make me. The worst thing that can happen to a Christian in the long run is actually, in actuality, the best thing. The worst thing that can happen is that you die in which it creates more power and glory in your life than ever before. Death becomes to the Christian a dark tunnel into a ballroom and a glorious celebration. That is all it can do to a Christian. Do you understand that? That is the way a Christian lives. Now let's just look at the second part briefly. Let's look at Jesus' resurrection reality. We've seen that he was raised for us and his resurrection destroys death. But we have something else also. Jesus says, Therefore, if you believe in me, two things will happen. On the one hand, he says, who believes in me? See, the resurrection reality of Christ comes into us through that little word, believe. Jesus says, he that believes in me, though you were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, Jesus is actually talking about two resurrections that come into our lives. The first one is, he says, that he who believes in me, though he were dead. 
Now that is in the Aorus Pass, and that means that he died at one point. Yet then he uses a future tense, in the future he will live. What Jesus is saying here is, when you die, you won't stay dead, but your body will come back to life. Better than that, you will get a new body. Therefore, it's talking this way. When you die, my friends, the Bible tells us we immediately go into the conscience, conscious presence of God. Hebrews talks about the spirits of just men and women being made perfect, worshiping at God's feet. But unlike the Greek religions and the pagan religions and the Eastern religions, Christians do not envision a bodiless eternity. We don't see the body as a bad thing at all. No, God created my body and my soul, and he's going to redeem my body and my soul. Jesus says the same thing Job said. Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. On that last day, though your old flesh has been eaten away, you will get new flesh. By the way, that verse literally says, I know my Redeemer lives and he will stand against the earth on that last day. You know what I think that probably means? It means Jesus Christ is going to look at this earth on that last day and say, Earth, you have my people in there. They may have died in caves, oceans, mountains, or the local graveyard, and I command you to give them up to me. They're mine. And that will come. And we'll all get new bodies. If you think I'm muscular now, wait until you see me then. Nothing will be able to withstand his command on that day because he has the name that is above every name. On that day, we're all going to rise. We'll get new bodies. Our souls will be in heaven and united with our new bodies, and we will say, O grave, where was your victory? Now, Jesus talks about a second kind of resurrection, and here's where we have to leave it, and it's a very searching question. Jesus says, He who believes in me will live and even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. He's talking about a different kind of life here. He's not talking about how your body gets renewed and resurrected. Here he's talking about a kind of life that starts and never goes out upon the moment of your salvation. He says, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. That he's saying there is a spiritual resurrection that happens now. When my Holy Spirit comes into your life, when you believe on me, that Spirit of God comes into you and renews you and changes you. And you are transformed from one degree of splendor until the next, until the moment of physical death. In which case that process actually becomes perfect and you burst like a flame into the presence of God. And we will then at that time be burning with His own joy and his own energy, and his own purity, and God's own perfection. So we're talking about a kind of life, though, that starts right now. That's Jesus' whole point with Martha. Martha says, yes, I know my brother will be resurrected sometime in the future. And what did Jesus say to her? No, 
I am the resurrection. The resurrection is not just a future possibility. It is a present certainty. Jesus says, wherever I am, there is life necessarily. That means that if you are in the presence of Christ, wherever he is, there has to be some form of resurrection right then. Listen, is there anything going on in your life that is revolutionary? Have you had an experience you can only describe in this way, that your heart has been changed? So where there was hardness, there's now softness. Where there was stagnation, there's now freshness. Where there was blindness, there's now sight. Where there was death, there's now life. Can you say something so revolutionary and amazing has happened to your heart and your life that you'd have to say, there's been a spiritual resurrection in my life. Can you point to a moment? Can you at least point to a process? Can you point to it? If you can't, Jesus Christ is saying here this morning, I'm not really in your life, at least not in the way that I desire to be, because wherever I am, there is life necessarily. As we close, theologian Alistair McGrath outlines the following stages of receiving Christ and what that did for us on the cross. He says, first, I may believe that God is promising me the forgiveness of sins. Second, I may trust that promise. But third, unless I respond to that promise, I shall not obtain forgiveness. The first two stages of faith prepare the way for the third, and without it, they are incomplete. Then he illustrates these three stages with the following true story. He says, consider a bottle of penicillin, the famous antibiotic identified by Alexander Fleming and first produced in clinical trials in Great Britain. The drug was responsible for saving countless individuals who would have died from other kinds of various forms of blood poisoning. He then says, think of the three stages of faith like this. I may accept the bottle of penicillin exists. I may trust in its ability to cure blood poisoning. But nothing will change unless I receive the drug that it contains. I must allow it to destroy the bacteria which is slowly killing me. Otherwise, I have not benefited from my faith in penicillin. It is that third element of faith which is of vital importance in making sense of the cross. Just as faith links to a bottle of penicillin to the cure of blood poisoning, so True, authentic faith forges a link between the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and ourselves. Faith unites us with the risen Christ and makes everything available to us that he gained through his obedience and the resurrection. Now this means moral reformation is not the same thing as conversion. Unless you're spiritually resurrected, it is possible to morally reform yourself. Hey, if you read the Bible and believe the Bible, but only as a morally reformed person instead of a spiritually resurrected person, you know what's probably going to happen? You're just going to start feeling more superior to other types of people. But, if you are spiritually resurrected, as you read the Bible, you will find out that the Bible becomes alive in you. 
And not only that, when you, you'll read the Bible, but you're also going to start discovering that the Bible is also reading you. It's at large in you. Have you ever tasted something so sweet that it electrifies your whole body and you can't help but just stuff it in? In the same way, the Bible should become alive like that to us and melt in our mouth. It dawns on you. It shines on you. It's alive. It's a two-edged sword. Has that happened to you? If it hasn't, it can this morning. And if you are unsure if that has happened in your life, please see me after the service. Let us pray. Lord God, you are the resurrection and the life. And right now you're walking in a room full of broken hearts. Open our hearts and open our eyes to not only who you are, but who you want to be in each of our lives. For you and you alone have the words of life. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.